This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of welcoming back my uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Anil Sud, who is a professor in the Department of uh, Gynecologic Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And uh, the reason for this podcast is a really exciting uh, topic that I want to discuss uh, with Anil um, uh, published in JAMA Network Open uh, recently, and it's titled Classification of High-Grade Serous Ovarian Cancer Using Tumor Morphologic Characteristics. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Anil. Thanks so much, Pedro. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, Anil, this is, uh, this is really an interesting article, and I really encourage everyone to, to read it because I think it has really uh, a, a very uh, interesting principle as it pertains to how we view uh, these tumors of high-grade serous ovarian cancer. And many times, you know, when, when attempting a cytoreduction reduction for advanced ovarian cancer, we often encounter that, you know, there are certain morphologic patterns of spread of the disease, even though these are all high-grade serous tumors. So I was really impressed in how you and your team uh, really thought about exploring this a little bit further. Like what makes these tumors different, even though they're all high-grade serous. So if you can start by just telling us why, how did you and, and the team uh, thought about uh, embarking on this? Uh, happy to. And Pedro, before I start, uh, I, I just want to congratulate you on what you've done with the International Journal. Uh, it's really incredible, the trajectory of the journal and how the impact factor has risen and um, you know, just the quality uh, all around. So really congratulate you and your team uh, in, in making that happen. Thank you. You know, I, um, uh, th this is something that uh, ever since as a fellow, um, you, you know, I'd noted that th there are differences when we look at um, uh, high-grade serous ovarian cancers, even though uh, it, at least at a broad level, microscopically, they look similar. And, you know, I'd always wondered, what is it about these cancers that, that can look so different? Is it something about the individual? Is it something about the host? Are there differences in the, in the tumors? Do they clinically behave differently? And, and really couldn't find, you know, much in terms of, um, uh, you know, a systematic look at it. And that's what motivated us. And, and and Pedro, obviously you're you're part of the team, so really uh, this has been an uh, an incredible opportunity, because about ten years ago, um, you know, as you know, we had launched the uh, moonshot effort here, where we tried to make the um, whole treatment for high grade serous uh, ovarian cancer a bit more uh, harmonized, a bit more systematic than that arbitrary decision making. Well, that afforded us a huge opportunity. Uh, because, uh, uh, you know, all of us then started doing uh, laparoscopic assessment on a lot of these patients, which uh, where videos were recorded in terms of uh, being able to go back and, and look at the morphologic differences. Again, clinically, anecdotally, as you had mentioned, we had all noticed these kind of differences, but couldn't really, uh, you know, approach that systematically unless we had some record of, of what that really looked like. Yeah, and uh, and I should say again, also uh, to you, congratulations for what you've done with the moonshot and ovarian cancer at Anderson. Um, so yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you, and I'm glad that finally you know this this studies uh, is uh, uh, completed because I, I remember throughout the years you and I having conversations about this exact uh, principle. 
Um, so what was the, the study design and, and what patient population were you interested in uh, specifically? So this is an initial go at it in terms of uh, trying to, um, to really figure out what these kind of uh, differences might mean. So the patient population we focused on was our first three years of doing the Moonshot effort. So it was from about 2013 through 2016, where we indeed had um, uh, laparoscopic videos recorded um, and so that we could go back and, and look at these systematically. And moreover, you know, when we started this uh, whole effort, we wanted to make sure that we had at least uh, some level of follow-up on these patients with regard to uh, their uh, progression-free survival at a minimum, uh, and also we had um, their, you know, their demographic features, their um, their uh, surgical outcomes, and 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 so on, and that that's why we focused on on that. So it was about 112 um, patients for this uh, first effort um, in terms of uh, identifying the morphologic differences. Great, and, and I want to get into that because, and I encourage the, the readers to uh, specifically look at, at table one of the uh, of the article because you really um, provide a very good outline of the what you call the type one and type two morphologic subtypes. Um, and how did you go about uh, identifying these, and 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 how did you classify patients that I guess demonstrated both types? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great questions, Pedro. So, you know, we all have our anecdotal impressions and we have certain biases in terms of what these may or may not look like, recollections from surgeries and, and, and so on. But we wanted to come up with uh, or try to come up with some type of a, uh, a, a classification system. So we had, uh, you know, several uh, of the Juan oncologists uh, just basically look at multiple videos to see you know, are there certain patterns that that jump out at us? Um, for the lack of not having any other better terminology, we called it type one versus two. Uh, perhaps there there are better terms that that we can uh, think about in the you know as we go along. But at this point, we came up with these these kind of characteristics that were that were fairly consistent um, that we could lump together and call it type one versus two. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, Pedro, in, 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 the, first, in the table one, we, um, we, set, um, we listed the specific criteria that we considered in each. And you know, type one um, were those where um, it really looked to be much more infiltrative. And, and we put some illustrative uh, images in in the uh, paper as well, just to show folk uh, people you know what we would consider uh, each uh, uh, each type. So type one seemed to be you know more with infiltrative appearance, including uh, the omental caking as well. Uh, typically, there could be large raised plaques, um, miliary lesions, um, distortion or of of some of the surrounding tissue. Whereas type two seem to be, you know, those with more of a superficial appearance. Um, you know, one of the uh, uh, one of the fellows who helped to uh, come up with this system said, you know, some of these almost look like you could scrape them off the peritoneum. So, mm. you know, more of a superficial appearance uh, that were exophytic um, nodules or patches, um, and and some of these also had like frond-like undulating surfaces. 
So those were the uh, kind of criteria that, that we considered for type one versus type two. Yeah, and I and again I should mention you're you're absolutely right. The the images that you have on uh, on this article are really superb. Um, and, and again, I, I encourage everyone to read the descriptions of the of the type ones and type twos. And as I look at them in the description, I think that we all are much happier when we see type two going into the uh, to the OR than uh, often the the type ones. Um, now, Emil, you also mentioned something that um, most people certainly I, I was not familiar with this type of analysis, um, multi omic analysis of the tumor samples. Um, tell us what that is, and and why did you do that? Yeah. Uh, so. Uh... Pedro, before I get into that, actually, one more question I don't think I uh, answered uh, fully with the last question is that, you know, we wanted to be able to appreciate the heterogeneity even in type 1 versus 2. So as we looked at it, you know, a lot of the samples or a lot of the patients we could classify as uniform at all of the four sites that were evaluated. So about 60 3% or so we could classify as uniform. Mm. Now, if, say, if one site looked different where it had had more of type 2 features, we said, okay, that's fine. We, then we call that predominant where, you know, three out of the four sites had, say, a, a specific morphological appearance, whereas a, a, the fourth one may be somewhat different. But vast majority, we could you know, appreciate that they, they had uniform morphology, but clearly there were some patients where, where um, there, there was a mixture at, at one or more of the sites. Interesting, yeah. And, and I'll ask a little bit later uh, with regards to whether there were any differences in, out, in outcomes in, in, right. uh, in those patients. Um, but yeah, so getting, so, getting back to the, uh, to the multi-omic yeah. uh, analysis, uh, so, what is that, and why did you do it? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, omics, we end up calling, uh, you know, a lot of the molecular analyses that could be, uh, for example, you know, if it's RNA-based, we, we end up calling transcriptomics. If it's, uh, you know, protein-based, we call it, um, you know, proteomics. Uh, if it's uh, immune-based, some people call it, immune, you know, immune, immunomics, et, et cetera. <laughs> so the multiomics meaning that, you know, Compared to when you and I were uh, were fellows, where the technologies were much more restricted, now it's just incredibly powerful, and we can get into so much depth with regard to what the molecular features are. So, for you know, a new question like this, where where okay, under the microscope it looks the same, but clearly there are morphological differences. So to to answer questions related to well, you know, are there molecular proteomic immune types of differences that could explain some of these um, uh, variations. That was the motivation to carry out this kind of a multiomics analysis. And, um, you know, the, the technique of carrying these out uh, is certainly fairly straightforward. Where I, I think it's more complicated is the analysis of this kind of data. Mm. And then also putting it together, meaning integrating all that data together. And that's where, you know, we're just so fortunate to have um, bioinformaticians who, who are really skilled at uh, being able to handle that kind of complex data. Yeah, absolutely. As you, as you, you can see from, from, from the, the team of authors in this, uh, in this manuscript, it is a, a collective effort. 
Um, so, Anil, let's let's get into the the results. Uh, what were the the main results of the study? Um, wh what do you consider is the take home message from the study? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we learned a lot uh, from this study uh, with regard to uh, just just to start with uh, some of the clinical features. The demographic features between the two uh, groups, having type one versus two, not, nothing really stood out uh, as, as being a major difference. Then, you know, as as you know, Pedro, we we look at the uh, the Fogoti score, um, you know, in terms of um, making um, uh, assessments up front. So that that PIV score, um, you know, there there were some differences. So patients who had um, uniform morphology of type one versus two, those who had type two tended to have um, lower uh, score, meaning less than eight, more hmm. frequently compared to those who had uh, type one appearance, and. Um, uh, you know, there was uh, th there were other differences as well in, in terms of um, you know those patients who received neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the um, uh, the response to chemotherapy, and again, the, you know, we don't have great criteria because resist criteria you can't completely formally apply uh, a lot of times in this kind of a setting. So we, we considered those who got new adjuvant chemotherapy as either excellent or poor responders. Excellent meaning that those who got three to four cycles of chemotherapy had um, on their CA125 levels essentially normalized. On, CAT, on CT scans, there was, there was a virtual disappearance of disease, whereas those who were poor responders Yes, they had some level of CA125 change, but it was much more modest and, and same thing on CT scans and so on. So, you know, anecdotally, I would have thought the opposite, but it really ended up that those who had type 1 disease tended to have better uh, or, uh, quote, excellent response more frequently to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Now, you know, then at the time of surgery, those who had type two disease tended to have bloodier cases. So the uh, the the uh, operative times were longer, as well as the mean blood loss was longer. Now, could that be because the the likelihood of um, you know response to uh, chemotherapy for those who at least got new adjuvant chemotherapy was less? Mm. Um, you know, that kind of work, we really need more, more patience and, and uh, ongoing work to really tease out. But there were clear differences, you know, then, then those who had type 2 disease also tended to have, you know, much more likely bowel resections and, and modified posterior exents and, and, mm. and so on to get the, get the disease out. So, so there were clinical differences, um, you know, in terms of the uh, two groups. Then to try to understand, you know, the uh, data from the the omics analysis, we first looked at the RNA analysis uh, itself, so the transcriptomic analysis, and indeed there were a number of uh, differences that we found between the two uh, type one versus two. The power of protein analysis here. So we collaborated with uh, Larry Maxwell, with Tom Conrad's, Nick Bateman at Inova for the proteomics analysis. And this was a very different type of proteomic analysis, meaning that um, we could actually do this off of a limited number of slides rather than missing up the whole tissue. 
So you don't destroy a lot of the tissue and you can get large scale protein analysis out. What, what was really neat to see was that there was a high level of concordance between the RNA and the protein data um, so that um, it, so that you can you can get a more consistent story uh, out of uh, this kind of analysis. So type 1 uh, tumors tended to have much more of TGF beta invasive uh, metastatic types of gene and protein signatures whereas type two tended to have much more of uh, FOXM1, MYC type of uh, signatures active. And if we think about, you know, the, the morphological appearance where the type one is the, is the more infiltrative appearance rather than exophytic, boy, this kind of uh, protein and RNA signature certainly makes sense in that regard. Uh, and, and the type two, you know, if they're uh, clinically um, uh, not... Uh, responding as well to chemotherapy, you know, transcriptional factors such as MIC, FOXM1 would certainly go along with that kind of biology. So that, that would certainly also make sense. So that's where, you know, this kind of analysis allows us to understand um, this, um, uh, this kind of biology better. Now to your, your ultimate question, Pedro, is, you know, well, why do we care about any of this at a clinical <laughs> level? You know, I found this incredibly powerful that our uh, our first ana visual analysis could actually tell us a lot about how these tumors may behave and what their molecular signatures may look like. Mm. Um, you know, I'm the first to acknowledge that there can be human biases when we look at this. So I think moving mm. forward, there are lots of steps that we need to consider you know, in this day and age, we're actually looking at AI-based approaches to see if we could simply take the human observation out of it, and if we can come up with objective uh, assessments of what type 1 and 2 may look like, and if these kinds of molecular features in the clinical outcomes hold, well, think about the power of this, where you can visually look at it, and, and you can make assessments of what their clinical behavior and what their molecular features may look like. So that, you know, uh, and this is totally theoretical at this point, right? But perhaps those tumors that are dominant for TGF-beta signatures or other pro-inflammatory signatures, are those the kinds of therapies we can combine with chemotherapy to improve outcomes of these patients? Whereas those who have type 2 that are FOXM driven, you know, are there different sets of therapies that we can combine with chemotherapy and, and uh, or perhaps ma in maintenance settings and so on? So those are the kinds of implications that that uh, that that are at least theoretically feasible as we move along. Neil, that's really fascinating, and again, uh, proved to the point that I, that I really felt that this was a, a very important article to to discuss, uh, and and once again inviting all who are listening to to look into the details of the articles because there's so many ramifications as you have uh, very nicely outlined. And, and I wanted to then ask you, because kind of getting back to how we apply this clinically, you know, it seemed to me that, as you mentioned, that the, the type ones, uh, even though those may be the what morphologically appear as most challenging, that they seem to have responded better to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And correct me if, if I'm uh, if I'm misquoting. So would it seem like we can basically put this type of information together, potentially even you know as you mentioned with a Fagotti score, and we say, well, 
if we see somebody that has a type one, then I'm really reassured that this patient should get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Peter, I think that's a kind of a question where if we can validate this as the numbers grow in this, and if the data continue to hold, then that's a kind of a question we want to, um, you know, be able to get to. Uh, ultimately, you know, uh, the the steps in this would need to be: uh, can we c- continue to objectively assess this? Can can is this reproducible? And if so then can we start to implement this in clinical decision-making and so on? But I think there's, there's steps, obviously, we have to take to, to get to that point. Um, just, just along those points, you know, we had a third score. Um, also, just take a look at the morphological appearance, just to get some sense of how much inter-rater variability there would be. And there was about 84% concordance, which is, which is pretty good. But, you know, this is a completely new scoring uh, approach, you know, based on morphology. And we would want to make sure that is this something that can be reliably done uh, on an ongoing basis? Or do we use like, you know, like I alluded to, like AI-based systems where it's not based on the human eye at all, but mm-hmm. rather it's completely objective. Um, as we answer those, then I think the clinical relevance will, will hopefully become clear. That that's great, and um, I think you know many of the listeners will be wondering, you know, in, in terms of um, residual disease, uh, did you see any differences in, in in terms of that residual disease at the completion of surgery, either for type one or type two? Um, what 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 did you find in this study? Yeah, that, great question, a very important question, Peter. We actually um, looked at, you know, over the last many years, uh, rather than just calling it quote, optimal, we really look at, you know, more complete gross resection, and and then also look at, you know, to what extent did we leave residual in those where we do leave it. Um, And there were no significant differences, but I think some of that also likely gets to the radicality of the surgery being being different, you know, between the two groups. But um, the ultimate result, though, was, was comparable in terms of getting to the complete gross resection rates. Great. <clears throat> Anil, my next question, and I think you, you alluded to a little bit uh, before with regards to the proteomic and, and transcriptomic analyses. Um, in terms of, you know, sort of like layman's term applicability of these results, uh, or if you had to explain this to a patient uh, with regards to, you know, you, you're a co-author in this article, tell me what was that about? Uh, and, and what can we learn from that? Yeah, yeah. You know, the what we're learning is that there are, um, even though at a microscopically, you know, these cancers look similar at a at a at a RNA or at a molecular level, there are major differences uh, in in these cancers based on how uh, how they look grossly. Some of these differences uh, can explain why they uh, they can potentially explain why they uh, may uh, behave differently as well. So some of the differences that we noted were that that tumors from the type one group tended to have a lot more of um, uh, of uh, uh, pathways that are related to what's called uh, um, EMT or epithelial to mesenchymal transition. Um, they, they had pathways related to angiogenesis to hypoxia, um, and and there were more of uh, what are called uh, Irregulatory cells that were present in the uh, uh, in the tumor, 
compared to uh, type two tumors that tended to have you know pathways that that would uh, relate to perhaps poor response to chemotherapy or or lower response to chemotherapy. What what this can inform in the long run is that you know are are these tumors um, those that that perhaps could even be treated differently? Again, I obviously don't know definitive answers to this, but you know are type one tumors those that are perhaps more likely to respond to antiangiogenesis drugs combined with chemotherapy, uh, whereas uh, type two tumors, do we need a to really consider a broader or different portfolio of drugs as as we develop this? The only way we'll know that is if we consider, you know, if we carry out rigorous uh, clinical trials that 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 consider this kind of a classification system. Um, so so in terms of treatment, you know, there, there are lots of implications, but th- those require really rigorous work moving forward. Yeah. And Anil, uh, on this uh, same type of analysis for, for those who might be interested in, in potentially uh, reproducing some of this work, you, you use something called hierarchical cluster analyses. What is that? What that means is that, you know, you're basically asking the uh, bioinformatics tools to figure out, you know, how do the tumors, how do the samples cluster together based on specific uh uh, patterns of molecular analyses. So that, that that's basically what that means. And, and so it allows us to then to look at, okay, under type one tumors, the, these are the kinds of, you know, molecular pathways that are activated compared to type two. Got it. And um, as a follow-up to, to also these analyses, and then we'll, we'll get into some more additional uh, questions on the, on the clinical part, you mentioned uh, metabol Lomic analyses. Um, what what does this tell us uh, clinically? Yeah, yeah. So um, before I get to that specific one, historically, when whenever we would look at metabolites, again we would take a chunk of tissue, miss it up, and then um, look at it. Um, you know what metabolites were up or down. So uh, metabolite metabolomics was typically done with a mass spec type of analysis where you would measure a large number of these kinds of metabolites. These could be inflammation related, like, um, you know, uh, arachidonic acid, uh, cholesterol pathways, lipids, and things like that, or variety of other uh, uh, metabolites that are present in the tumors. Now, I'll tell you that, you know, again, it's so much fun to to be able to collaborate with certain teams. So Livia Eberlin, who used to be at UT Austin, and now she's actually moved to uh, uh, to Baylor, she developed a technique that she calls Daisy Mass Spec, where with a, with a single slide of tissue, you can look at metabol- metabolomics um, and get data both from the tumor compartment as well as the stromal compartment Boy, that's powerful. Uh, we've we had never been able to do that before. Now she she's been really quite um, uh, you know a lot of ingenuity behind this. So she's actually designed a mass spec pen that, as you know, we're testing mm-hmm. surgery to be able to look at you know tumor versus normal areas and so on. But in the context of this paper, the metabolomics we try to look at that. Okay, those tumors that are type one versus type two. Are there indeed differences that we can detect? And clearly, there were a number of differences. A couple that really stood out were, you know, inflammation-related metabolites such as arachidonic acid or some of the fatty acids were particularly elevated in type one tumors, 
whereas cardiolipin, phosphatidylinositol, those kinds of lipids were present more so in type 2. Again, some of this goes uh, along with the type of um, uh, RNA and protein data uh, that we saw with regard to hypoxia and, and angiogenesis being activated. Um, but, but this is basically another layer of uh, analysis that, that, that we uh, were able to look at, um, at at the tumor and the stromal level. That's really great. Um, so now, Neil, we have been talking a lot about what's happening at the neoadjuvant treatment level, at the surgery level. Um, tell us a little bit about what you learned with regards to response to subsequent treatment. So response to adjuvant chemotherapy or even maintenance uh, treatment. I don't know if you had many patients who were on maintenance therapy in this uh, study. Yeah, Peter, that, that data uh, really needs to mature further before we can get longer term outcome. And, and that was part of the reason why we even decided to focus on the initial you know, um, the um, uh, three-year uh, period of time. So maintenance um, data, we really did not tease out uh, in this particular study. We did look at, you know, um, what one of the common things we look at is, is BRCA uh, mm -hmm. mutations being present or absent, and there really were not significant differences. Anecdotally, I would have thought that, boy, you know, uh, if, if there's such major gross uh, appearance changes that there may be differences, but that, that certainly didn't um, turn out to be true in this setting. But uh, again, as we move forward, the, um, the uh, outcome analyses are, are certainly um, of, of interest to us. Yeah. And you, and follow up to that, you mentioned BRCA. Uh, were these tumors checked for HRD? And uh, do you have any information about that as it pertains to type one versus type two? Um, not for this particular study, Pedro. That that level of analysis, we're certainly very interested in, uh, but it, it was, uh, uh, apart from germline BRCA, we really didn't expand uh, to HRD at this point. Okay. Um, you mentioned, I believe it was in the discussion, uh, regarding alterations of lipid signatures predicting worse response to uh, particularly neoadjuvant chemotherapy um, for type two uh, tumors. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so th that was uh, what we were just talking about a few minutes ago related to yeah. where in type two tumors, we saw much more of, you know, cardiolipins, phosphatidylinositol, those kinds of lipids being present. And theoretically, you know, those could be related to uh, chemotherapy response and so on as well. Okay. Uh, and now just uh, coming on to a few of the concluding questions now, Initially, you mentioned the predictive index value or the Fagotti score. Um, are you incorporating morphologic findings into your decision-making for primary versus interval saddle reduction uh, currently in your practice? No, not at all. I, I think this is something we need uh, really additional validation data to, to incorporate this as a part of, um, uh, you know, uh, practice. And um, uh, now in terms of... Uh, uh, you know, as we design additional studies, um, of course, we want to look at the gross morphology and have um, data recorded. Um, you know, the videos uh, that were recorded are really powerful because they you you can then then actually look at specific regions. But at a minimum, if um, you know collaborators or others can uh, can take even still images that are high quality from the uh, regions that 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 are of interest 
that 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 would be really powerful. Great. So, Neil, I had just uh, uh, two more questions. Um, one one of them is, uh, you know, certainly, I think it would be very hard to potentially conduct a prospective randomized trial to triage and and, and treat patients according to their tumor molecular profile and and uh, and molecular signatures and metabolic signatures. Um, how, how do we integrate this? And could this be a tool regarding targeted therapy later? Yeah, yeah. You know, this is a first step uh, in terms of coming up with a, you know, classification system and trying to understand the biology uh, around it. I think, um, uh, you know, for this to move forward, uh, it no, the first thing is, you know, obviously we have to validate uh, these kinds of data. Then moreover, we have to ask that, okay, if you see, you know, TGF-beta dominant signatures, does adding a TGF-beta antibody or inhibitor make a difference in that, in, in that population? We don't know that at this point, but you know, there are already a, a number of TGF-beta receptor inhibitors. There are antibodies that are in clinical trials. Even if we can't you know, purely randomize based on this data at present, I think having the ability, at least in the near term, to do post hoc analyses, you know, for example, of those patients who are getting TGF beta targeted drugs, and if you knew what their morphological appearance was and that related to uh, presence or absence of that kind of signature, boy, that would get us a step closer to that, that kind of targeted approach, wouldn't it? And, and, and same thing with type two. You know, if, uh, if this validates that indeed the, they tend not to respond to chemotherapy as well, their PFS um, is shorter and so on. You know, there are a number of drugs that are now, uh, that, that can regulate MYC. Um, and, you know, MYC has been well known to contribute to poor response to platinum-based drugs and so on. Then again, those are opportunities in terms of improving outcomes. Yeah, and and uh, and I'm looking at my notes. I I did want to uh, come back to that question before I conclude the the outcomes. And if you can briefly tell us of the patients that have both type one and type two. Um, you know that that's that's kind of a mixture. Mm -hmm. That's not totally uniform. Yeah, it's it's a it's a smaller group, Peter. So we were not able to tease that out in this particular study. But you know, it, it's intriguing though that. In, in a relapse setting, it's not too uncommon, is it, that we see heterogeneity of response, right? We could see five sites that are responding and two or three mm -hmm. that are not responding. Mm. Well, what's the difference, right? What's uh, Are there molecular differences at those? Some initial studies would suggest that indeed there is heterogeneity depending on where the metastases are and what their, their molecular pathways are. Uh, does that reflect to this kind of morphological appearance as well? I, at this point, it's too early to know that. Yeah, absolutely. So, Anil, as a last question, I always ask uh, our, our guests, um, from the perspective of how do we treat or how do we have a discussion uh, with our patients uh, next week uh, as it pertains to the results of these studies, um, what, what would you say to that? You know, uh, I... I think that very likely our colleagues and patients may ask about this. What I would say is that, you know, we're getting smarter about uh, understanding um, uh, what, what tumors look like, and uh, we're understanding what they're, uh, what they're intricate with, what their molecular and immune profiles look like, and they can be very different depending on how, how tumors appear. 
the uh, the clinical translation in terms of uh, being able to uh, impact on that kind of knowledge will require uh, additional validation studies. Uh, but at a first look at it, uh, we're really uh, trying. Uh, we're really getting smarter about uh, what the um, underlying differences are. Anil, this is, uh, has been uh, really a, a great discussion. I always learn so much in uh, speaking with you. Uh, brilliant work uh, to you and your team. Congratulations, because I'm sure this was a tremendous amount of work and effort and resources. Um, thank you again for all of that uh, contribution to gynecologic oncology for, for what you do for, for our patients. Uh, once again, tremendous amount of respect for you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pedro, and, and really appreciate you uh, doing this today.